You better believe I'm grumpy. Doug McConnell nicked my water. And Emma's put a word find into the um, newsletter, so I don't know what that says about what she thinks coming. My oath. Well, previously, in the Acts of the Holy Spirit, Jesus ascends to heaven. Judas is replaced by, as an apostle by Matthias, the Holy Spirit blows everybody's mind at Pentecost. Peter proclaims the gospel for the first time to the startled onlookers. Peter and John heal a disabled man and boldly defend themselves in front of the Sanhedrin. And everybody is amazed. No, oh, I've got one, bro. Oh, look at this. Oh. Yeah, I'll forgive you next week. Thank you. Everyone is amazed. It's been a wild ride thus far. The Spirit performing miracles and inspiring the apostles to be bold and dynamic witnesses to the gospel, especially Peter. Okay, our story continues from Acts 4, verses 32. Now the whole group of those who believed were of one heart and soul. And no one claimed private ownership of any possessions, but everything they owned was held in common. With great power, the apostles gave their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as owned lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold, and they laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as they had need. There was a Levite, a native of Cyprus, Joseph, to whom the apostles gave the name Barnabas, which means son of encouragement. Nice name. He sold a field that belonged to him and then brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. Listen to the fruit of the Spirit's work. There's this great unity. And they are looking after each other. Those who have means are looking to the needs of those who don't. They're continuing to share their testimony of Jesus' salvation with great power. But not from the, a power from themselves, a power from the Holy Spirit. Enter Barnabas, who has a significant role later on in the Acts story, spreading the gospel with Paul. He's a Levite of the priestly tribe. And the idea of Levites was that they weren't supposed to own their own land. The tithe of the rest of the tribes was supposed to support them. But he does own land. Don't know if that rule had lapsed by the first century. Or perhaps this is his burial plot that he's selling. We don't know. However, we can surmise that he was a man of some means, because as well as owning this field, if you skip ahead to Acts 12, there's a prayer meeting held uh, when Peter is in prison, and that is held at the relative of, a relative of Barnabas's, and it's a big place, and they've got a maid. So they're a, they're a wealthy family. Well, it seems that most of the wealthier early Christians had done like Barnabas. They'd given up their 
their wealth for the greater good. Now, this is not some early version of communism because there's no suggestion here that there was any compulsion on anyone to do this. They acted out of the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to care for their brothers and sisters, to give up their privilege, and in so doing, invest in a caring and a loving community. But not everyone did. Listen to this from Acts 5. But a man named Ananias, with the consent of his wife Sapphira, sold a piece of property. And with his wife's knowledge, he kept back some of the proceeds and brought only a part and laid it at the apostles' feet. Ananias, Peter asked, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, were not the proceeds at your disposal? How is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? He didn't lie to us, but to God. Now when Ananias heard these words, he fell down and died. And great fear seized all who heard it. The young men came and wrapped up his body, then carried him out and buried him. And Phil said to me before the service today, I'm going to be interested on your take for Opawa Baptist's church discipline after preaching from this story. I have heard a story, and I don't know if it's apocryphal or true, that someone died in a members meeting here some years ago. Moving emotion at the time? No, oh, that, that would have been better. <laughs> well, stuff's getting real, isn't it? And I'm not surprised that people who heard what had happened were scared. There was a renewed fear of God. I'm sure as heck I would have. I would have been watching what I say real careful. Now, if you were here a while back to listen to Karen's story about her family involvement in Gloria Vale, you may remember that the leaders of Gloria Vale tried to bully her father into transferring his property into the church. And when he refused to do this, they accused him of being an Ananias. Fairly? No. Look at what Peter says in verse 4. While the land remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, were not the proceeds at your disposal? How is it that you've contrived this deed in your heart you didn't lie to us but to God? There was no compulsion, no demand on them to put the land or its proceeds into the common fund. It was their own, and once they'd cashed up, the cash was their own too. The issue here is that Ananias lied. By implicitly representing that what he put into the common part was all of the proceeds. And Sapphira takes it a step further by blatantly lying. Listen to verses 7 to 11. After an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. Peter said to her, 
tell me whether you and your husband sold the land for such and such a price. And she said, yeah, yeah, that was the price. Then Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to put the Spirit of the Lord to the test? Look, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door and they will carry you out too. Immediately she fell down dead at his feet. When the young men came in, they found her dead, so they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear seized the whole church and all who heard these things. As far as Peter was concerned, they'd lied to the Holy Spirit, God who was doing such remarkable things in and through their community. He went so far to say, you've not lied to us, but to God. Now, now clearly they had lied to the community, but I think Peter meant, well, that was as nothing as compared to lying to God. So what's going on here? Why did Ananias and Sapphira, as people of means, do what they did? When Barnabas, who was also probably a person of means, did not. Well, Ananias and Sapphira were part of the community. There's no suggestion here, to reason to think that they were not true believers in Jesus. I imagine that they had experienced and seen the same remarkable things that the rest of the community had. They clearly valued the good opinion of others. They wanted to be seen, like Barnabas, to be all in, when actually they weren't. They had what is called in the Sopranos, remember this series? Anybody ever watch it? Loved it. They had a go bag. Now, I used to watch The Sopranos. It's a series about this small mafia family in New Jersey, just um, south of New York. The boss is Tony Soprano, this bloke here, big guy. He's an interesting character. He's ruthless and brutal. At the same time, he's trying to raise his adolescent children, and he's going to a therapist because he's having panic attacks. Really interesting series. Now, the go-bag was a bag in the wardrobe. And in the go-bag were some false identity papers, a false passport, and a whole pile of cash. And that was there in case he and his missus had to flee quickly because they were about to be arrested. Well, I imagine that Ananias and Sapphira, like many people of means, were quite good at seeing risks and opportunities. They knew, or would have known, in their society at the time, that there was no tradition of Her Majesty's loyal opposition. Theirs was a one-party state, one-party religious state, a little bit like uh, Iran, perhaps, or Saudi Arabia now. Jesus, their leader, had come to a sticky end. And full-on persecution would come to this church at some stage, which in fact it did, not far down the track, just after Stephen's martyrdom in Acts 8. They would have understood, I think, that an alternative religious community would be perceived as a threat by the Jewish ruling class, which clearly it was. Thus, they decided 
to have a bob each way to spread their risk. A bit like the punter who goes to the race course, takes a look at a race course, takes a look at a race horse, thinks that's probably going to win. It's a good-looking horse, but I'll split my risk. I'll stick five bucks on the win and five bucks on the place. So if it comes first, second, or third, I'll get something back. Now Jesus and Paul both had an awful, awful lot to say about money, specifically the love of money. Paul famously said that the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil in 2 Timothy. And Jesus in Luke 18 said that it is easier for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter heaven. Both of these men had tons to say about money. You know, that subject that we avoid at all costs. Money. I wonder if having an escape route was only part of what was going on for Ananias and Sapphira here. Because in those days, having money suggested that you were a good and worthy person who'd been blessed by God. A bit like the traditional upper-class English view that their old money meant that they were a sort of a higher form of life, higher than anyone else. If they were giving it away, they gave it away, well, they were giving up any claim to be those high-status worthy people. And that's a big deal. That would be to submit utterly to this newly formed Christian community, but affluent people don't find submission to be very easy. It's different when poorer people come into money. They're not so attached to it. In Thatcher's Britain, there was, in the 80s, there were tons and tons of redundancies. And with those redundancies came massive payments. And many of these people were poor people, they had mortgages, and they get however many thousand pounds, and what do they do with it? Do they pay off their mortgage? Do they invest in another business? No, they cash it up, they go down to the pub, they put a pile of dough on the, on the bar, and they say, let us know when we're finished. And the whole community would have a 48-hour drink-up. They had no hope, so they saw no point in hanging on to the money. Similarly, there is research to show that 70% of lotto winners, millionaires, have nothing to show for it after five years. It's quite a statistic, that. My late mother-in-law knew someone who won big, and he went nuts. He bought a lot of toys. Boat, fancy car, and he bought a tavern because being a publican was his dream job. Well, it wasn't many years before he lost it all, and he was, in fact, doing time for fraud. Winning lotto was the worst thing that ever happened to him because he didn't know what to do with it. Because having means did not define him. But they are much more key to the identity of someone who has been affluent for quite a while. To give that up is huge. Hence, in Jesus' encounter with the rich young ruler, he was unable to give away his wealth and follow Jesus because he was too attached to it. 
It was part of who he was. Peter refers to it as a spiritual battle that Ananias faced, that Satan had filled his heart, much like Satan had entered Judas and led him to destruction and had tried to enter Peter, tempted him to betray Jesus, but not such that there was no way back. Well, the story continues. Now, many signs and wonders were done among the people through the apostles. And they were all together in Solomon's portico. None, none of the rest dared to join them. But the people held them in high esteem. Yet more than ever, believers were added to the Lord great numbers of both men and women. So that they even carried out the sick into the streets and laid them on cots and mats in order that Peter's shadow might fall on them, some of them, as he came by. A great number of people would also gather from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing the sick and those tormented by unclean spirits, and they were all cured. The Spirit continues to do amazing things, and via the back door is growing the church. People, though, saw Peter as the principal, not the agent. As if those miraculous things that he did were ultimately from him. And we are still prone to doing this, to glorifying people and what, what God does through them. People like these two, Benny Hinn and Kenneth Copeland, have massive followings as hyper-Pentecostal televangelists. Apparently you can buy handkerchiefs off them, which they've blessed and expect to be healed. Well, at the other end of the spectrum, is Billy Graham and John Stott, who many treat like they were Protestant saints. And that's not to mention Popes John Paul II and Francis, who, if you talk to a good Catholic, are regarded like rock stars. I am told that the graveyards, gravestones of these two, now that joker on the left, is, I'm not sure what his first name was, but he's Smith Wigglesworth, who was a very famous evangelist. And that is Amy Semple McPherson on the right. Both big-name evangelists between the wars. Anyway, their graves are regarded as shrines by some misguided Christians who think their Holy Spirit's anointing is still with their decaying corpses. And so they visit their grave sites thinking they will be able to get some of that anointing for themselves. They call it grave-sucking. Mad as fish. It's not them, it's a spirit. It's easy to forget that it's the acts of the Holy Spirit, not the acts of the apostles. We are the messengers or the means for God to do his will, his hands and his feet on earth. Graham, Stott, the Popes, Macpherson, Smith, Wigglesworth, were all extraordinarily gifted Christians. But their gifts were gifts of the Holy Spirit. They weren't self-made. Likewise, the good character that they showed was the fruit of the Holy Spirit. He moulded them 
the same way he moulds us today. In our culture, wealth can serve as a marker for achievement or ability, especially if someone is self-made, so starting with little or nothing. And in my observation, churches are far too impressed with wealthy business people or entrepreneurs, professional people, and by pastoral leaders with big, upfront, charismatic personalities. All such people are at their best advertisements for the gifts and the fruit of the Holy Spirit, not for their own inherent goodness. It interests me that in Acts 5.11, it's the first time this new faith community is called the church. During a hard time of judgment and great fear. Now the story of Acts is part of the Christian church's whakapapa. Our spiritual lineage going right back 2,000 years across massive gulfs of time into an honor-shame culture of the ancient Near East, really different from the world we live in. But despite that gulf of time and context, they aren't so hard to relate to and so learn from their experience. I want to suggest to you that our wealth, or lack of it, by itself says nothing that is spiritually meaningful about us and who we are and what we're like. Our giftedness or our good character says something about our faithfulness to our shared call to follow Jesus, but it does not make us a higher form of humanity. Peter, who healed the disabled man, who they were bringing their sick out in case his shadow would fall on them, is the same Peter who betrayed Jesus on the night before he died. Same Peter who was afraid to be seen eating with Gentile Christians later on in the story of Acts. Learn from others and, and even admire them, but know that everybody has feet of clay. Martin Luther King, who blazed a godly trail in the US civil rights movement, who was profoundly used by God, regularly committed adultery during his marriage. Many people's hero from previous couple of generations, Billy Graham, was an anti-Semite, as was Martin Luther at the end. A friend of mine attended a church led by an extremely gifted preacher and pastor. He was so gifted and so looked up to that he eventually became the leader of their denomination. He discipled her, he mentored her, and she learned tons from him. I came across an article he'd written back in the day, and this was a wise and smart man. However, it later emerged that he'd been having affairs with women in his congregation for several decades. When that came out, he left his wife, married his PA, and got a job in another church. That's another story. The difficult thing to accept, though, is even though he had this hidden life, 
God was still working in him and through him for the benefit of many people, including my friend. That was hard for her. Her spiritual growth was real, even though she was left wondering, was I not attractive enough to have a pass made at me? I think she got his best self, actually. His lovers got his worst self. Our call is to faithfully follow Jesus, whether on the big stage, preaching to thousands, writing a book for the ages, or making the tea here at Opawa Baptist. And when we see God at work in and through others, give him the glory, not them. Amen. Thank you for your kind attentions. Uh, would the musicians please come up?